Welcome back to another episode of Deplorable Nation. I'm your host, Deplorable Janet, and tonight I have a wonderful guest for you guys. Um, we're going to have a very in-depth conversation, which I'm super excited about. This is actually episode number 89. My guest today is Monty Mansfield. So you are the neighborhood hope dealer. <laughs> I want you to um, kind of give the listeners a brief introduction of you, and then we're going to get into your story story. Okay. Hi, how are you guys doing? My name's Monty, uh, Monty Mansfield. Um, I'm the local neighborhood hope dealer, baby. <laughs> no, so I, woo, woo. so let's go, baby. So I went to, uh, I, I went to the Salvation Army, a, a wonderful place uh, to finally get clean and sober. And a lot of the guys that were in there, they would talk about selling dope and dope this and dope that. And I came in one day and I said, hey, man, I'm the hope dealer, baby. And like everybody loved it. And I continue just to carry it on to my YouTube channel. And I just like to continue to be the hope dealer because it, it was given to me for free. And I like to give it away for free, you know, and I'm just super thankful to be clean and sober. But just a little background on my story. I played 10 years professional baseball. I played seven years with the Houston Astros. I got hooked on prescription drugs during baseball. And then it carried on to being on the harder drugs, which were methamphetamine and heroin. Became a criminal, caught a felony, and was able to find the gift of desperation. And the Lord cha has changed my whole entire life i'm coming up on three years sober on may 1st and i'm just super thankful what you're looking at and what you're talking to or what you're listening to right now is all of the grace of god and this is god's will because my will buries me into the ground and takes me into a jail cell so i'm just very thankful to be able to sit here right here and i'm so super thankful for the opportunity janet to be able to share my story i'm i'm so glad that you're here and gotta give a huge shout out to my my friend uh josh monday from Christian and Conspiracy Podcast, because he actually hooked us up. So let's start like at the very beginning. What was it like growing up for you? And, and how did that get you into where you were? So growing up, um, I had a pretty normal childhood. My father was a, a meth addict, but my father, I would like to throw out there, he's doing really well now. He's a superintendent. He's turned his life around. He just, because of drug addiction, he doesn't come back to where I live because he's so afraid of coming back to the area that he used at. So he lives in Washington. But yes, during that time, my father was on drugs. He was on methamphetamine. He was a working addict. So I didn't see him a lot, you know, but my mom, my mom has stayed sober her whole entire life. She's an amazing mom. When my dad left, she continued to uh, just move and groove, you know, and be able to raise, uh, she raised three kids. And, and, and one that was when I was, uh, she had a, a child when I was uh, 18. So he's now like 22 years old, you know, so she had a child really, really young. She remarried. But she was an athlete, so she was an amazing sports star down in Glendora, and she loved sports. So sports was a big thing in my life, and if you guys have kids, I recommend you putting them in sports if they can. It really saved my life for a long time, was able to have purpose. I love basketball. I love baseball. I love football, and I continued to have um, a pretty normal childhood, but I was really spoiled by the community because of how good I was in sports. Every Saturday, every All-Star game, the whole community would show up to watch me play. And I really kind of ran amok as a child. Um, like I grew up with Josh Monday and his brother Jason. Jason, they were on the other side of the tracks, but we really didn't have a lot of parental guidance. We kind of did what we wanted to do. And I didn't get the foundation I needed as a child to be able to really handle my professional baseball career. But my junior year of high school, I um I grew to six, my dad's six eight. So I grew to being six foot four. Uh, you know, 225 pounds. I start throwing the ball 94 miles an hour and I start getting major attention from scouts. 
within the community and within uh, across the nation, you know. So I'm starting to get taken out to steak dinners, starting to be treated like a king. Uh, I was prom king at my high school. Uh, my last day of my high school day, my last day I was signing autographs. They had an assembly for me, and I was drafted by the Cleveland Indians in the 11th round of the amateur draft, 1999, 113th pick overall. But who I was back then, um, I, I wanted more. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't, I wasn't very humble. I had a lot of pride. And like I like to tell people now, man, your ego is not your amigo, baby. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> True. And, and, True. And, I, and, and my agent came down and we talked and I chose to uh, not sign. They were going to offer me 50000 in my schooling. I chose to not sign and I went to go play at RCC, which is Riverside Community College. Uh, I went 14-1. and one. We won the national championship. And then I went in the 16th round negotiation um negotiations abilities like i was able to talk to the uh, the scouts and have more business savvy and i ended up getting one hundred twenty thousand dollars at 19 years old and that started my professional baseball journey so let me let me ask you this um how old were you when your mom and dad divorced so my mom and dad divorced when i was about uh like 12 years old so it was like a really 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 hard time um to go through i was very confused um about a lot of things i was very young um a lot of people came into my life um a lot of people tried to date my mom you know what i'm saying a lot of coaches a lot of coaches a a lot of scouts thought my mom was pretty you know what i'm saying And, and, and my mom's a pretty she's a wonderful woman you know what i'm saying but she met the love of her life jason which is my stepdad which is i mean it's kind of a crazy story but he's like 20 22 years younger than my mom. So when they met, he was a really young guy. And now he's been like the best man I've ever met in my entire life. He's been by her side the whole time. He's continued to work. I mean, he's just an awesome, amazing man. And I know that now because when I got clean and sober, the Lord switched the price tags back on me. So I know what to put value in and I know what not to put value in. And then you build these great, amazing relationships because you're not trying to push away everyone that's trying to save your life because you Mm -hmm. want to use drugs. You see? Right. And that's so important. And you know, Thinking back like to your childhood and and when your parents separated, did that start a snowball of problems for you? Like, was there um, struggles with anxiety, depression, anything like that going on since your world was kind of upended? Yeah, so I would say that. Because of sports, and you got and you got to understand, I made these. I made sports my god. Like sports was my god at that point, and I was really, really good at it. My life at that point, maybe like outside of my um my my family, my house. My mom always continued to try to keep everything pretty normal, and I was in, in my high school. Man, I had the high school sweetheart. I had a. I was the star athlete. I had all those things that were going for me. So when I started to first reach anxiety and start to feel like I had depression and really not know what was going on and try to escape who I was, was about two years into pro baseball when I finally started struggling and what I made was my God, which was baseball. So when I first started struggling, my first two seasons went really, really well. Everything was good. Then all of a sudden, um, the third season, I come into spring training. I start to struggle throwing strikes. I'm having a bad season. I find out my high school sweetheart cheats on me. I'm out there in Michigan. I'm trying to still continue to put all these things together. So now life on life terms hits me, and I don't have the foundation to be able to handle this at that time. So for me, first, my addiction started to drinking alcohol after games just to loosen up. Super mad about what my ex, what my girlfriend had done to me taking it out on women, chasing earthly pleasures, just becoming that whole cliche party animal type baseball player. 
So do you think um, being that you came from a professional sports team and were always, you know, in that world for, for a long time, do you see there is a big problem with uh, professional players uh, with drugs, with alcohol, with gambling addictions and things like that? Do you, do you find it to be like a very addictive culture? Yeah. So if I had to look back, we understand life backwards, you know, and, and, and if I remember walking through the locker rooms and seeing how many guys were out, were reading the Bible and were actually uh, studying and trying to learn about the Lord, it was far in between, man. Most of the, a lot of the guys were out partying. A lot of guys were out mm -hmm. chasing pleasures. Um, a lot of guys were doing a lot of things like that. I have some really, really good friends out there. There's a lot of really, really good guys that I played ball with. You guys got to understand, I came through the steroid era. So there was a lot of steroids going on and baseball was kind of crazy. So when I first came into spring training, my first year, you know, I walked onto the thing and everybody had an aura to them. And now when I'm looking back at the names that I'm seeing, you know, a lot of guys were on steroids. A lot of guys were on the juice. And then a lot of guys were doing Adderall. So when steroids became illegal, when steroids became illegal and amphetamines became illegal, it went from like, like um, maybe like 20 people being prescribed to Adderall to like 3,500 the next year being prescribed because now you can create the loophole so right. when you felt for amphetamine. You were able to still continue to play without getting the suspension. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of. Uh, pleasure seeking out there uh earthly pleasures that you want to seek because i tell people man if you're a guy and you walk out of a locker room and if you don't have the foundation for me the foundation of the lord and you're walking out of that locker room and you're going to chase everything the devil has to offer and he's offering women he's offering drugs he's offering that party lifestyle you and then as a baseball player you wake up you can wake up at 12 1 in the afternoon if you want so you're living this life that's like not really reality but then all of a sudden when baseball ends then you're hit with reality. And then that's what happened to me is I was lost for a while when I got out of baseball until I was finally able to go somewhere and I was able to find myself at the Salvation Army and learn a program that has changed my whole entire life. Because like I say, we have free will. We're the only creation on the planet with free will. Every other creation will live off a genetic code and instincts, but every other creation will reach their maximum potential. Us as humans, we're the only ones that will sabotage our potential. And like I try to tell people, God will come a million miles in your direction, but he gave you the gift of free will so you can choose him that last step and that's been the secret the last three years i put in god first and i've had an amazing life with that amen you know? amen, amen to that mm -hmm. now let me ask you like where you grew up at was there a lot of stuff to do for kids or was sports like the thing Sports was the only thing, man. I grew up in the desert. So I grew up in the high desert. It's called Victorville, uh, Hesperia, Victorville, California. It's a commuter's town. A lot of the people that are middle class, you know what I'm saying? Um, a lot of my family members, um, a lot of them were on methamphetamine. Uh, it was a worker class neighborhood. And if you talk to Josh and you talk to Jason, you know, we didn't have a lot of rules. We were out partying in the desert. We were making bonfires at Honda Valley. You know what I'm saying? We were doing beer cake stands like like we were partying. That's what you did out here in the high desert. And you partied and you partied. For me, during growing up through high school, I was so focused on baseball. I stayed away from all that. 
But then when I would come back from the off season, after my season, I'd come back and I would be bored because I'd be on the off season. There would be nothing to do. I had my, my signing bonus. I had money. So I'd come back and then I start to hang around people that were doing the party and, you know, and I would just start to party on the off season. I continued to train, but I continued to train all the time. But I, I looked up the players like Pete Rose, people that played hard and partied harder, Mickey Mantle. Um, I, these guys are like my heroes, you know? So from in my in my area now when i look at being sober now i live in san diego and there's so much vibrations there's so much activity like i wouldn't know if i would want to be sober in where i grew up because it is kind of boring it's a boring city there's not much to do you know what i mean so i'm able to have a lot of vibrations also recovery and um and, and but as a kid growing up you know for us like me jason josh i used to we were like liquor store kids we'd show up to the liquor store with no shoes no shirt some some shorts on with with a slurpee you know what i'm saying like like that's the way that we were raised so when i got into pro ball and having the discipline to be able to do that every night like to be able to walk out of the locker room and say no to all the things that the devil has to offer because what i believe is the devil he minimizes sin and then mm -hmm. once you sin he maximizes it the same with your relapse when somebody right. relapses they, they think that it's going to be great because the obsession talks you into using, but then once they put it in their body, they activate the allergy and then they can't, they can't stop. So it then maximizes it. But I was able to not, I couldn't walk out of the locker room, keep my head down, focus on the Lord, go to my room, go to sleep, wake up, have purpose, because all I wanted to do was chase pleasures. That's it. That was my main focus. And when baseball was taken from me that year when I wasn't throwing strikes, the only thing that was making me feel good was to leave this earth for just a little bit of time while getting high or drinking or whatever what, whatever the case may be. But all that starts to add up and build up and build up until your life becomes unmanageable. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. um, for a couple years right there were really bad for me in baseball. I was a really bad alcoholic, drinking a lot, and I had gotten to a, a bar fight. Um, my fourth season and I got sent home and then that's when things changed for me in the sense that I was able to go home on that off season. I was able to clear my mind and I came back the next spring training and I was, and I won pitcher of the year. And then that shot me up through the organization for a few years doing pretty well until when I was 28. And then that's when amphetamine Adderall was introduced into my life. So when you were 19 and you yeah. signed for all that money, how different was that for you how how did that affect you to have that kind of influx of cash into your life yeah it was it was crazy um a lot of people came out of the woodwork you know i had my, my high school baseball coach um he came out and told me at a baseball game we're at victor valley college we're sitting there in the stands he asked me if he could talk to me i just signed for 120 grand you know so i had this money and and, and 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 I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't have the foundation to be able to handle that, man. Right. Money can be the root of all evil, you know. And 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 I didn't know how to handle it at all. So anyhow, he ends up asking me to borrow um 10 grand, you know, and I'm like, and he tells me that his granddaughter was kidnapped, he's gotta find a private investigator. Later on, I find out that he was a gambling addict, you know. So there's a lot of people that had come into my life that when now I'm looking back and I'm like, were they even in my life because they cared or were they in my life because they wanted the money right. to where you really start to, you start to gain this, uh, create this attitude of like, I don't need nobody. I can do this on my own. I got mm -hmm. this. Like you, you get this whole, like uh, me against the world attitude, which is not a really a good way to think, you know, it's not really a good way to be because fellowship, it's like iron sharpens iron as man sharpens man. If you, you got to be able to give certain people the ability to come into your life and so they can like, they can, they can help you and they can grow you, you know, but I didn't know how to recognize good and evil or bad or good. I didn't, I wasn't able to, um, um, to distinguish the difference, you know, 
like I do now. Like I've been able to seek the Lord more, and now I can see the fiery arrows. And now I'm lined up with my conscience, so I'm able to be able to walk in the light with the Spirit and continue to have my integrity and make the right decisions one day at a time. Which I didn't, I didn't know what to do back then. I was young, had a lot of money, and I just honestly did not know what to do. So what I did is I continued to feed the flesh. I continued to chase earthly pleasures until that well ran dry. It took a while, but I'm glad that I got it now because the Lord, like I said, He will have you wander for your whole life if oh, you yeah. want to. If you want to wander, and I didn't want to be on my deathbed thinking to myself, like. Did you chase all this stuff that doesn't matter, you know, to where now I want to be 85 years old, sitting there going, okay, at 37 years old, you turned your life around. Now you're saving souls. And now you've continued to be an asset on this planet and not a liability. You know, that was a big fear of mine at 37 when I was like, oh man, you know, when, uh, you know, when I've made the final decision to finally make that choice. Now, did you, um, did you pursue school through this or did you put school like, off completely because of baseball yeah once i found out i would had a chance to go pro i put school off i just just to be real with you i wish i wouldn't have it would have gave me a lot more opportunity to have a backup plan in my life but for me once i found out i could go pro i did sign with cal state fullerton i signed a full ride scholarship at then but once i found that i was going to go in the draft i put school on the back burner to where i even on fourth period pre-algebra i would sleep during that class to get ready for the game <laughs> So that's how that's how bad I put school on the back burner. But like, I wish I wouldn't have, you know, I wish I would have because I love to learn. I used to think like, oh, you got ADHD and you can't focus in class. And now I love to learn. I I, I seek, I thirst for learning, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I, I totally like who I thought I was then. I'm totally a different person than I than I was growing up, you know, and I was like, I can't sit still in class and all that. And now I'm able to, to be able to sit still. I'm able to learn. I thirst for knowledge and I'm just super thankful for the person that I am now, but I definitely put school on the back burner and it was a big problem for me. I wish I would have had that because then I wanted to put so much pressure on myself every single time I went out there and touched the mound during my professional baseball career. Mm -hmm. So you started out with alcohol mm -hmm. and the, and the first thing that you went to after that, was that Adderall? No. So I started off with alcohol. And then for, let's say, a couple couple years when I went home on that offseason, when I got in that fight, I kind of picked up a marijuana habit. And what was going on at that point is I was uh, I was staying sober all day, and I would smoke a blunt at night after the games. You know what I'm saying? And it kind of kept me in check. I was able to have a nice mindset. I was able – like, I honestly thought I found the, the way of life. Like, I was – I was thinking, like, oh, you're like this hippie baseball player. Like, <laughs> this is this is the image that I thought that I had, you know. And I was moving up. I was doing good in baseball. You know what I'm saying? But I was continuing to getting super stoned after the games. And what had happened is I was going into a season. I was going up into AAA, which is a level right below. The, I think there's a Nashville Sound out where you're at. It's mm -hmm. a AAA team out there in Nashville. But I was going up to that level right there. And uh, – I come in injured. I come into the season injured and I'm, I'm hurting my shoulder. And when you come into spring training, it's very important that you work every single day because you have about a month and a half and it takes one pitch. You got to be able to go one day at a time and then the game starts to slow down for you. And then you're able to leave that that, that day. Like the first day you show up to spring training, the game's really fast. It's like boom, 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 boom. And then you slow it down throughout that month and a half. And then you head out to the season and everybody's ready to start rocking and rolling for the 162 game 
same season. So mm-hmm. I end up missing half of that year. And, and while I'm sitting in the, in the clubhouse, I'm watching everybody get ready for the game. Now I'm smoking weed during the day. I'm smoking weed now, now because I lost my purpose again, which I made my God. Now I'm right. continuing to have anxiety, continue to have stress, continue to, to like honestly freak out in my mind but continuing to try to hold it together in front of everybody else. And then right in the middle of the season, they say, Monty, you're headed up to Round Rock. Let's go, baby. Let's do this. I get up there, and my first outing, everybody's like 80 games into the season. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's relaxed. Everyone, the game's slowed down. Well, I'm a mess. I'm scared. I'm freaking out. I go out there. I hit a couple guys. I walk a few guys. I get pulled out of the game, and I'm sitting inside the dugout, and I'm just sweating, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, like – you screwed up. Like, I, like it was my God. So everything was just falling apart for me at that point. Mm-hmm. I ended up coming the next day. I ended up going the next day to the stadium, not wanting to go. I'm just like miserable. I'm super depressed, nervous. And I'm like, but this is all I knew how to do was play baseball. So I had to go, you know what I'm saying? And I played right. 10 years of pro baseball because I had to. I had no backup plan. This is what I believed I had to do. So I ended up going to the, the field and I'm telling my teammate, I'm like, man, I'm not feeling good at all, man. I'm having massive anxiety. And he goes, hey, why don't you try this pill? And it was Adderall. He goes, yeah, it's for ADHD, bro. It will calm you down. I, I didn't know what it was at that point. I take it. Within five minutes, my arm feels great. My, my brain feels good. I'm confident. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm like, this is the limitless pill, baby. I, got, I need this for the rest of my life. I ended up going out there in front of 30,000 fans, calm as you can get. At that point, I'm six foot four, 230 pounds, throwing 93 miles an hour, 10 strikeouts and four innings, drink all night long, wake up with no hangover, and I'm like, I'm ready to go. Let's go. How do we get this? You know what I'm saying? Because it, it disguised itself as heaven, but it took me straight to hell. And that's what drugs do in the beginning mm-hmm. because they're messing with your reward system. They're messing with the dopamine in your brain. So no matter how life is going or how bad things are going, it's going to make you feel great at that first moment. That's why they say you're always chasing the first high. And what happens is you start to obsess over this because this is the only re- this is the only solution that you've ever had for so long. And you and, and, and you continue to go to it and go to it and go to it. And, and it becomes an obsession. So do you continue? Like I like I, I tell addicts, you know, we, we can get this to this a little bit later. But like I tell addicts that we suffer from an obsession of the mind that continues to get you to go out and do just one more. You put the drug in your body. You activate the phenomenon of craving which is the allergy that we're that we're allergic to the drug Mm -hmm. it's not that we or the alcohol or the drug it's not that we like break out in hives but we we break out in this thing called the phenomenon of craving and i know this because when i have relapsed and i put it inside my body i cannot stop there's something in my body that will not allow me to stop using until for me i'm in the back of a cop car but that first day that i showed up to the stadium i have to share this because this this story all started with one pill that I thought was a was was a pill for ADHD, and I showed up that day with my brand new Tundra, uh, a beautiful apartment, making six thousand a month, headed to the big leagues, just enjoying my life at that point at twenty eight years old. But when we fast forward four years, now I got doctors coming to my house with ketchup stains on their shirts because they just blew all their money in Vegas. You know what I'm saying? These are the type of doctors I'm putting myself around, which now that doctor's in jail for because he sold Oxycontin to someone that died, and he's in prison for murder, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. for manslaughter. So these are the type of doctors I'm putting myself around. And now four years later, at this point, I know I'm not taking the ADHD med now. Every single bottle I get says amphetamine salts. 
You know, cisamphetamine right. salts right on the bottle. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But for the longest time, because I was getting it for a doc from a doctor and I was like prescribed to it, I thought that I was doing something that was okay, but it's not okay. It's amphetamine. It's amphetamine salts. And the last day of my baseball career, I'm 31 years old now, lost my tundra, had it repo. I'm playing in Canada. I'm playing in Canada. And now I'm, I'm throwing 85 miles an hour. I'm 180 pounds. And now I'm about to go home to live with mommy and go stay in my little bedroom with my little banners from little league at 31 years old that's the difference from 28 and 31 and this doesn't stop this doesn't stop there you know what i'm saying but my whole thing started with with um with a prescription drug called adderall and i need to put awareness out there because it is a drug right. and they have our they have our kids on this stuff yeah and it's just incredible to me that what what is going on with with the prescription drugs in, in america well, and it's funny that you brought that up because being a nurse, um, mm -hmm. one of the biggest pushes that I can tell you happened in, in my career was that all the kids have ADHD or ADD. And so every physician was pushed by Big Pharma to prescribe all of these children um, amphetamine medications yeah. just like that and there's literally one on the market which it may not even still be on the market now that is not an amphetamine it's not a stimulant but the rest of them mm -hmm. are so all of these parents are not even aware that that is the drug that their kid is on and what yeah. kind of implications that has for their future and, and their yeah. long-term memory and the whole nine yards so. And it's sad because it, it um, it's powerful, you know, and, and right. of course you're going to feel, of course you're going to feel great at first. It's amphetamine, mm -hmm. but if you keep tapping into the dopamine, it's like a soda machine. It's going to run dry. So at the very end, you're just trying to do, you're trying to use the amphetamine or trying to use the Adderall just to be able to get to functionability. So you're waking up below feeling good just to try to feel good for the rest of your entire life. And I, I mean, and, and like I say, it just, uh, of course it feels great in the beginning, but I just can't believe that they want to prescribe young kids to it because it literally took over my whole life. And it's all right. I thought about. And, 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 and if, if I had Adderall, I can function. If I have Adderall, I can function. And it, it's just so sad to, to know that that's what they prescribe kids for ADHD. And now being three years sober off all substances, I don't even feel like, I mean, I feel like I'm in control. I don't have anxiety. I look to the Lord for my strength. And it's just amazing how I feel that I don't take any meds, you know, and, 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 and I feel great, you know? So did you, um, did you come off of that, off of the, um, medication off of the Adderall and then go to something else? Or did you just move straight through to something? So when I, so when I, when I got out of baseball, I didn't have insurance no more. So once you don't have insurance, I couldn't really get the pills. Didn't really know how to get them without insurance. I wasn't able to go to the doctors and all that. So what I did is I started working at, um, I started working at FedEx and I was working part-time at that point. I had, I had to find a, a job, you know, but for me, like traveling, um, from stadium to stadium, from city to city, you know, going to actually clock into a box every day and work in a warehouse, it was excruciating for really me. Really hard. Yeah. Yeah, like I just wasn't trained to do that. 
And I was starting at the bottom, which now at 37, I did start at the bottom. But at this point, I'm like, man, I played pro baseball, man. I'm here stretching with 18-year-old kids, you know. And and, and, and like, like I'm at the bottom of the barrel of the company, which I did not have the humility because now I believe that all leaders among us must be servants. But that's not how I thought back then. So I end up. All right. Okay. Now can, can you hear me? Sorry. Sorry about that. Somebody tried to call in on me. So, um. So, so when I um, started working part-time, I started taking Norcos, started doing pain pills to try to like get, cause coming off the Adderall, you know, I just, I'm an addict, you know, I started doing the Norcos bill within like a month. I'm taking 20 uh, Norcos a day. That's how bad my addiction got. Wow. You know? That's so a lot. I'm, yeah. I'm taking like so many amounts of them, you know, and me and my buddies were fueling our addiction guys. I grew up with here fueling our addiction. And then all of a sudden I got hired full time and I'm like, man, I'm not going to be able to make this full time if I keep taking these pills because I won't work unless I have them. So I start to come off them and it's miserable coming off opiates. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like going, going to work the first couple of days and I ended up going to go buy some weed at one of the guy's houses. And he said, and he goes, hey, man, you want to try this? Go fast. So, oh, you didn't call it dope. You didn't call it meth. You called it go fast. Let's go, baby. I snort a line and it did the same thing Adderall did because it felt like Adderall. So I was like, oh, I can handle this. This is just like Adderall. But you can't, dude. Methamphetamine is a whole other ballgame. And I end up disguising itself as heaven, ends up taking me to hell. And I end up working in the warehouse. And I'm like sweating grease. The, the, the ladies are running from me. I'm like working harder than anybody. But I'm losing weight. I'm looking strung out. And now I'm, now I'm like sleeping in my car. And now it's doing exactly what it does to you, it takes over your whole entire life. It takes every resource, every ability that you have until you're like lost and you have nothing left. Like I tell people, you'll ruin your whole entire life and you'll feel okay doing it. That's what meth does because mm -hmm. you're messing with dopamine. You're, 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 you're pulling dopamine out of your brain little by little to where you're not even caring about anything around you. So it's making the worst situations feel okay but it's not okay it's it's not good you know and i that's how i got hooked on the meth um at that point and then once i lost my job is when my addiction took got really really bad because now i had a major drug addiction with no job and i didn't know how to i didn't know how to fuel my drug addiction at that time so where i started doing crime and then deep down in my heart like like we we changed the way we think my brain was like oh i'm not stealing from people i'm stealing from stores like you'll totally change your moral compass to thinking that you're all right just so you can live with yourself but for me to be able to walk out of stores or steal from stores i used to i had to put the needle in my arm to be able to like get the courage or the the craziness to be able to do that and then my last five my last four or five years on uh, in my addiction i got hooked on the needle which was just miserable it was a miserable miserable time and the first time that i did it i i i felt like my soul was going over me and it was telling me man you're gonna go you're gonna go to hell for this you know what i mean and 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 i i did it and then and then i learned how to do it myself and then after you learn how to do it yourself you can do it in the dark you can do it wherever you want you can do it when no one's looking and and i continue to isolate and that's when my addiction really reached the depths of hell at, at that point when I started putting the needle in my arm. So tell people um, that have never experienced that before, like what it is like, especially trying to come off of narcotics. So it's, it's really hard. So what happens is your brain, right? Your brain is going to make you feel like it's going to be harder than it is. So your brain is going to tell you that, oh, it's going to be so painful. It's not, it's going to hurt so bad. So what you'll do is you'll continue to get their narcotic and you'll try to just try to stay well and it will keep you doing the drug for much longer than you need to. For me, I was able to go to jail for three months 
and I and, and the come down wasn't as bad as what my brain was making me feel like it was gonna be. So if you just make the decision to get clean, you go for it. It won't be as bad as you think it's gonna be. But because your brain wants to continue to do the one solution that you had your whole entire like the whole time you're using, your only solution is to be able to use drugs. And 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 we're supposed to find joy and happiness and gratitude and, and happiness and gratitude and like things that we do. So we're supposed to get joy on a hard day's work or walking with the Lord or helping another human being. That's supposed to give us joy, but you got to put work in to do that. We're in such mm -hmm. an instant gratification world. The minute, the minute you put the drug in your body, it's a direct feedback. So you feel joy at the beginning, but it right. continues. Like I said, you're continuing to pull the dopamine out of your brain until you're an empty vessel. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. like when I was younger, I used to tell myself, Monty, you can get clean later in life. But guys, life is so short. Like eternity is like here from the other side of the room. And our life's like this big, all right? Our life, our, our lifespan's like that long, man. The first 37 years of my life flew by so fast. And next thing you know, people in their, when I'm around in, in my addiction are dying in their 50s. So mostly anybody on meth and heroin, they're dying in their 50s. I'm 37. I'm like, I only got like 13 years left to live. You know what I'm saying? I start to panic, you know? So like, there's a lot of things that came to a head to where that made, that made me decide to want to get clean. It was pretty much the gift of desperation, which I like to talk about the prodigal, the story of the prodigal son, you know, with the, with the son in the pig slop. And right. he decided to finally turn his life over and come back home because he realized that even the servants at his dad's at his father's um, ranch were being treated better than him. And for me, the prodigal son, I love it because it relates to us, to me, people that walked away from God. And it mm -hmm. relates to people that stayed with God their whole entire lives. It gives both perspectives. And I absolutely love that story because I feel like when I got that $120,000, I went out to see what the world had to offer. And I chased earthly pleasures until I was until I lost my soul. And then I was on the side of a, of, of a Walmart up north in Redding, in, um, in Redding North Car uh, North Calif Northern California, because can I tell the story? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, I, so I'm a... So I'm sitting there and this is the last week of my addiction guys and now I'm hooked on heroin and meth and now I'm running from the police because of a uh, because of a a felony that I had caught. So now I'm running from the police. Not only I used to be a pro athlete and now I'm a criminal junkie, all right? That's the fall from grace that I have and I believe that the Lord saves some of the biggest misfits because of their their power and their testimony when he does that and I firmly truly believe that and it's just a total um, this is all God's will. I mean, I really can't explain it, but but that that's the only thing that I can say. It's all the glory to God. But my buddy hit my buddy goes, Hey, we're gonna go up, up north to become vendors in a parade. And I said, All right, that's cool. And he goes, I don't want you to bring any syringes because I don't want you to embarrass us while you're up there. I don't want you to get caught doing something stupid. So I end up saying, Okay, cool. Um, I had no job and we're gonna make some money. So I end up going up there. Well, God took me out of my environment. I was in that environment for three years just fueling my drug addiction, going from house to house, house to house, you know, committing crime with this group of people that I could not get away from. And I was sucked up into that lifestyle, but God took me out of that. It took me up North. And then when I got up North, I said, well, all these guys are getting high. They're vendors, you know, they're, they were working in a parade. Like everybody's getting high up here. So I go to the Rite Aid to go get a syringe and they tell me, no, you need a prescription to get a syringe. Well, in Southern California, they don't have that there. They allow you to buy syringes there to keep, right. uh, it's called uh, damage control or something. 
Um, anyways, they allow you to buy syringes down there. Up there, you couldn't. I go to CVS. They say, no, sorry, we're not going to give you one. I walk all the way to Walmart. I get to the front of the line, and I tell the, the lady tells me, no, you don't have a prescription. I say, ma'am, I'm a junkie, and I need a needle. And she looks at me, and she goes, get the hell out of my store, you junkie. And I walk onto the side of the building, and I literally dropped to my knees, and I started crying, dude. And I was like, and it was like God took me out of that environment and brought me up there and did not give me the tool that I needed to get high. And mm -hmm. I sat on the side of that building, and I can't not help but the Lord saved me that at that moment because I – Literally, like I was like the, the 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 brother in the pig slop, and I thought to myself, like, man, you cannot do this no more. And I literally, that moment, I got up, I worked those couple days, I came back home, I turned myself in, and now I've been three years sober from that moment. So I can't help but not believe as I look at life backwards and I see that how God has been working in my life the whole way. I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. But if I look back at my whole career, I was always a team motivator. I always got the team pumped up. I did all the interviews for the teams that are, I was on. So my talent and my gift my whole life has been able to speak and been able to share the good news. But I didn't realize that back then. I realized and thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. But now I have this powerful testimony that I was able to overcome drug addiction. And now at 90 years old, baseball would have ended in its 40s or its 50s because of physically. But now I have this ability to share the good news. And now I can do this until I'm 90, until I'm on the deathbed, until I'm on my deathbed saying, let's go, baby. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think, I think that's beautiful, though. And you... You hit the nail on the head because um, watching your videos, it is very exciting and your energy and your passion for life um, is a beautiful thing to see. And so having that gift of from God, you have the gift of prophecy. Mm, thank you. You really do so that mm. you can go out and share your story. And that's the beautiful thing, um, and I think one of the things that a lot of people don't understand um, about God's grace and mercy is that he does take people that are broken or were broken lives or following lives that he did not intend for them and use them <clears throat> to show and tell other people about his word and, and how if you live in that manner, um, if you live in, in God's way, instead of your own instant gratification way, um, <clears throat> things are so much better and oh. you don't have, there's no drama and your life isn't in constant turmoil and things are so much better. And it's really hard for a lot of people, I think, to relate because they believe there's a higher power, but they're not at that acceptance level yet to say that it's god yeah. but they're they're getting spiritual and so they're making the right moves um but that's why i'm so excited to have you here with me today because your, your story is so fascinating and i want you to explain to people what did you do which i know because i i heard this on another show but what did you do to get the felony okay so to get the felony man and this was the best my brain could think then and, and i'm super embarrassed by how uh but what i would do but i would dress up like a mormon because um cops don't pull over mormons you know what i'm saying so i would right. ride my bike and i would even have the book of mormon on me that's crazy but we would look up estate sales 
me and my buddy uh, Danny, we'd look up estate sales, and then we would. Uh, I would ride my bike up to the front door, and I knew how to pick locks. I would pick the front lock. We had a box truck. I would drive up, and we would rob the whole estate sale. So now, when I went to the Salvation Army, the Salvation Army deals with all kinds of things like that. So I realized when I got there that I was actually robbing people that really needed this money to pay for funerals. So, so there's a lot of um, a guilt and a lot of shame, a lot of things bad that have I've realized later on, you know. But that was what my best thinking was back then because the addiction was so strong to get the drug that that's what we did. And then we took all that stuff we would steal, we put it in storage units, and then we would go sell it at the swap meet. And this was like the vicious cycle that we would do for like a whole year. And then I got caught on a ring cam and I ended up catching the felony, which was for great. And I was just, I was walking, I was riding my bike on like, like, like the beginning of my drug addiction, Toyota Tundra, brand new, end of my addiction, Diamondback bike. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like the, riding a bike around, do, 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 do. like everyone's like, oh shoot, Monty's about to pull up. You know what I mean? So, and, and I, um, I, I, I ended up, um, um, yeah, so that that's just like where my addiction took me to, and I just super uh, ashamed and, and and feel bad about it. But I I was riding my bike, and the cops pulled up on me. Ontario PD, they boom boom, and I used to tell people, I'm like, oh hey bro, I'm Mr. Misdemeanor, baby. I ain't gonna catch no felonies. I'm Mr. Misdemeanor, and 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 and, and the cops knew that, and I was going in and out of jail like crazy because of this, but they were never like locking me up, you know? And they pulled me over and they're saying, hey, man, so we got you now with a felony, baby. Like, and, 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 and cops can get pretty wild too, but there was times in my addiction where I would be up in the high desert where I grew up and one of the cop knew I used to play pro ball and he would pull up my baseball card while I was in the back of the cop car. And he'd be like, man, look at you, look who you used to be. Now look at you. Like these are moments that I lived through, you know, or when I was coming out of, I was walking the streets of Hesperia, California, ex-prom king, ex-pro athlete. My mom pulls out of the uh, her school parking lot and sees me and puts her head down and wants nothing to do with me. These are experiences that I lived through or when I was in jail and this guy that used to be on my Little League baseball team who used to look up to me tremendously is now a cop and he's handing me my chow in the, in the chow hall, you know? Like these are, these are experiences that I lived through and that's why I have so much passion for my testimony because now I'm 41 years old. I'm not 20, I'm 41. And I lived through those years, those 21 years of this addiction. So I have, you know, I believe I have some wisdom and I'm able and I'm able to have some some power in my testimony to be able to share the good news because I lived with the rich. I've lived, I've I thought I went camping down at the river, but stayed there for six months. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like, like I've been with the homeless, I've been with the rich, I've covered all bases, you know. And now I believe I can sit at the table, I can go down to homeless camps, I can share the good news, I can help addicts, I can help people to struggle. With, uh, with 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 it's just life, you know. Because to me, the twelve steps is 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 something that anybody can do, even a normie. Okay, that's what we call an addiction. We call normies people that didn't use drugs, you know. Even mm -hmm. they could use the twelve steps, and it could be a powerful tool to help them clear out the baggage in their life, you know. Right. And for because it's a backwards, it's like a backwards, uh, it's like a backdoor um, way to find a spiritual awakening. Because mm -hmm. us as addicts, we're killing ourselves so quickly that we need some type of spiritual awakening. And in the big book, if you take out all the things about spirituality, the big book's about this thin. But if you mm -hmm. put all those pages back in, it's about this thick. You see. Right. Right. So it's it's a spiritual malady that we suffer from, and now we have to have a spiritual experience, you know. And 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 that's what 
what I love so much is that the Salvation Army, when I was coming into there, I, I, I was afraid. I was, I was shameful. I felt guilt, just like the prodigal son coming back home. But his father threw a party for him because he knew he had walked away from the family, but he saw how bad it was out there, and now he knew that he would never leave. And I believe that's how God, that, that's how God brought me in, that he threw a party for me because now I'm so afraid to walk away from God. That I cling to him with every soul. I literally surrender to God every day, every morning, almost consistently all day long. If I'm not talking to my client or my wife, I'm thinking of thoughts with God, you know. And now for me, learning about how before Jesus came down, the Jews had to follow 600 rules within the Ten Commandments just to be able right. to feel worthy enough to be able to have a relationship with God. Well, God realized that we are sinful creatures. We have we have flesh that they could never live up to those 600 rules. So they never felt like they were worthy enough to have that relationship. So then Jesus came down as the savior. I watched the show, The Chosen, fell in love I with love the character. Yeah. Fell in love I with love the character. That. And I was like, okay, so Jesus is like the coolest, awesomest, greatest person to ever walk the earth. And you want me to be more like him? Game on, baby. You know what I'm saying? And then I realized that once he died on the cross, I think now, now my, his grace is sufficient. I could come to him and not feel bad about how I robbed people, I stole from people, how I treated my family and how people treated me and I was able to forget, be forgiven. And now I'm able to have this relationship with God, which I tell people, my God talks to me like the best baseball coach, like the baseball coach. I wish I could have always had is what my God talks to me like. And now my self-talk is so sufficient. It's incredible. My God talks to me like this, like, hey, baby, let's go. You got this. When I wake up in the morning, come on, mom, you got this. Let's spread the good news. Hey, you're on the right track. Hey, you probably shouldn't do that. Hey, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, that's how my God talks to me because I'm lined up with my conscience and I'm able to have this relationship with him because I learned that Jesus came down and died on the cross. And now I'm able to have that relationship with God. And that's that that was like it unleashes power from within me that was like blocked and held down because of my past life, because I had fear and I had anxiety of the future and I was always future tripping. And now I have faith and I have this preview that I'm going to be able to spread the good news to a lot of people. And what's crazy is like nine months ago, I was sitting in, in one of the houses that I house managed at. Now me and my wife have our own apartment, but I was sitting there and I was trying to think, man, because I hadn't been on social media for two years. I had no phone for a year in the Salvation Army, no social media for two years. And I started thinking, how can I spread the good news more? So what I did is I started a Facebook account and I hadn't had one in two years. So all the people that I grew up in that knew me and I thought I was dead, I came back out of nowhere as this like changed man. And people are just like, what the heck, man, God is good. <laughs> and so many people write me in my inbox, even guys I play baseball with, they're like, man, you were like a party animal. Like, like what the heck, like God is good. You know what I'm saying? And that's right. that power in that testimony. And I was sitting there one day and I was like, you know what? I want to make a video. And I literally, if you go on my YouTube channel and if you look at my very first video, when I go up to the uh, Kate Sessions Park, I'm like sitting there and I'm like, I'm like, hey guys, um, dopeless hope fiend. Like I'm like no energy, no nothing. I didn't know what I was doing, you know? And then I just did it every day, every day, every day, every day, every day. And in the last nine months, I've been on like three podcasts. I've been thankful enough to be on your podcast. I've got back in contact with Josh Monday who does podcasts. I, uh, right. I, I do I, every Saturday morning. I do the devotion at the Salvation Army where I get up for 45 minutes and I spread the good word with like a microphone on in front of like 90 guys. And today after I did it, the, when the kid prayed out, he goes, thank you, Lord, for sending your disciple here to talk to us. Like these are things I'm like, man, dude, like, 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 like I just get super excited to be able to share the good news because 
three years ago, I had a needles in my arm. I couldn't even get high, and I was on the jail cell floor. You know, 180 pounds, missing front tooth. Like, everything that the earth, every gift I had as a young kid had been stripped from me. You know what I mean? And now I've emerged as this, amazing, as, as this different person, and all I do is thank God for it. And it keeps me humble. And I'm a, and, and like the, the prodigal son coming back home is that he know he's that the father knew he would always be home because he saw what was out there. Like I'm 41, knowing what's out there now, knowing that this is the way and the truth. And and that's how I that that's just how I function now, you know. But I wake up every day with amazing energy. Like I need no alarm clock. I need nothing like that. I wake up, boom. I get in the shower and I listen to my motivational stuff. And I just continue to move and groove. I go to the park. I make my videos. And then I pick up all my clients. And I do what I got to do for work. Then I continue to uh, do meetings. I share at meetings. I, I do church. I do uh, church on Wednesday, church on Sunday. And me and my wife have this amazing non-toxic relationship, which I thought never even existed on it's this planet. It's a beautiful thing, right? When you, when you get that that kind of bond where it's not about you know drugs or alcohol mm -hmm. or whatever. And you can share and and be on such a deeper level with each other 100 you know? percent. and yeah it, it was like every relationship i had ever been in there's that moment where um they lie to you or, or you lie to them and and, and 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 everything's going good but the minute that the lie happens things change from that moment right. and you know it in your you know it in your mind you know and i never thought in a million years and i've been with my wife now for like a year uh, over a year and a half she's never ever 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 lied to me and i've never ever ever lied to her and even though uh if we might you know little little screw ups nothing bad you know just little things we've always been completely honest with each other and like mm -hmm. there is relationships out there like that there's a lot of people right. that have a relationships like that you know and i just because of what i was around and who i was putting myself around had no idea because anyone i was around was putting the drug first so anything for the drug and then anything after that was second so people would actually lie, and, 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 and when you're around a bunch of pleasure seekers, people mm -hmm. seeking pleasures, it's not good, and it's not fun to be around because everyone's right. going to throw you under the bus. And if you're a nice person, it's really not good to be around because I used to be in houses where people would prey on nice people, and I would hear about how what they were going to do to that person fraud-wise, things like that, and then right. I would be around it and see how they would act so kind and so nice to that person. But all along, knowing that they were going to fraud them or they were going to do them dirty. And that's mm -hmm. just so hard to be able to trust anybody, you know. And now I trust so many people in my recovery that I have so many mentors that were Salvation or Salvation Army officers now that, that they're just amazing people. And I trust so many people now. And it's just incredible um, the turnaround in life and the things, the thing, the perspective has changed for me. Now, let me ask you. Um... A question when you were going through like uh the darkest part of you know the the drugs and and all of that stuff where were you living so i was living down in ontario california so i i i went out to my um i went out to my cousin's house um and i got clean for like five months out there but i was white knuckling it i had no program no god so this is why I know um, addiction, a relapse gets progressively worse. I end up having to come back home and, and I end up having to come back home because of my karmic debt. So uh, I end up having to go to court down this way. And um, I'm still, I'm sitting there. And when she tells me, she goes, Monty, you're going to have to go back home because of uh, some court cases. So she starts crying because she knows I'm doing good. 
I start crying, but in my head, I'm thinking you're going to go get high as it can get, brother, when you go home. <laughs> and, and and I'm thinking, and I'm thinking like, but I'm going to do it different this time. I'm going to smoke dope this time. I won't shoot it. I won't slam it. I end up getting home, manipulating my mom because everybody wants to save me. They love me to death. They they see that 14 year old kid, Bonnie. You know, they don't see this this uh you know uh 34 year old man that's like a broken vessel. They see that young boy, and everyone's trying to save me. So I talk my mom into getting me some marijuana. And, and then I end up uh, I end up trading it for dope and I end up putting smoking it. And, and within a half hour, I have a needle in my arm. And now I go on the worst run of my life. And that's when I got really deep into the whole like that whole lifestyle. And so I end up meeting a girl named Taylor Patton who were fueling each other's drug habit. And I'm living down at her grandma's house. And, and um, we end up the grandma ends up dying um, from dementia, which is a horrible, horrible, horrible disease to die from. Mm-hmm. But she ends up she ends up passing away from it. And we end up just turning that house into like the neighborhood was there like it was so disgusting and, and and so bad and my my um uh how would you say that like my uh expectations or or who i was had gotten so low that uh, of who i was as a person like there was so much trash everywhere needles everywhere we now mm-hmm. had to connect we moved the connect into the house into a trailer on the side to where when 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 we got raided by the police i was sitting out in the front and the way like normal people when you can hear them on the walkie talkies like normal cops walking through the house what how they were talking about our living environment was so embarrassing dude it was like oh my god like they were laughing at us making fun of us like 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 it was horrible you know what i mean and 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 that's just where my lifestyle took me and then at the very end when i went on the run i was going from garage to garage so now you're hanging around people that keep talking about what they want to do but they're afraid to go outside because they're looking at surveillance and they think the cops are down the street and they're never leaving the garage. Like this is the type of environment I'm in. When I used to be in an environment with 32 grown men playing professional baseball, chasing their dream, walking out to a stadium with 30,000 fans. Like that's where my environment started. And now this is where my addiction took me to was the garage to garage, super isolated, continuing to make the connect. My God, like, like the guy that gives you the drugs, you do anything for that person. But mm-hmm. the family members that love you, you will do anything to push them away. Right. So that's what ends up happening. The best moment in my life was when my mom, I showed up at her house. She said, I have nothing for you no more, son. And she took away that enabling from me. And that's mm-hmm. when it got really bad. But now when I look back to it, it was the best thing that ever happened to me is when the final enabler, my mom, she took away that avenue to go home when I was sick or go home when I needed to sleep, go home when I needed to eat. And that's a super hard thing for a mother to do. You oh, know? right. Right. Is to be able to pull that curtain from that from her son or her daughter. They're going to want to try to save until the end of time. But you got to understand, do the addict, if you're trying to help an addict, they're going to try to push you away. You know, it's the one if you're actually helping an addict, you're actually making them mad at you. You know what I'm saying? Like 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 an addict is going to try to push anybody away that's trying to like not get them what they need to do to get high. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? And that's the that's the sad part. I've seen beautiful women, man, like jump into trash cans to dig out receipts right in the front of Walmart to go mm-hmm. return items like, like that are hooked on heroin. You know, I'm like, right. I'm like, Oh, it's just such a, a, a dark lifestyle. I've seen beautiful. I got to shed light on it. I've seen beautiful girls, 1920 hooked on heroin and they're staying with like 55 year old men in trailer parks because they, 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 they make it social security and they can, they can afford to get that girl drugs as they piece it out to her and keep her as a slave. You know what right. I mean? Like, like it's such a dark, dark world out there, you know? Now for me, um, I'm, I came from the other side of this because I mm-hmm. was married to a, 
drug addict, <laughs> alcoholic, um, abuser, uh, and then <laughs> professional uh, meth maker um, oh, wow, yeah. that was like transporting across state lines and stuff. And, and his was uh, a graduation of, you know, started out smoking marijuana when, when he was like, 10 years old or something and then it gradually increased and increased and increased and he's been married like i don't know eight times now but each person that he married was for a specific reason and a use like he ended up uh marrying a uh regional manager for a large drugstore chain and so that's how he accessed some of the ingredients that he needed to make meth. Um, and so, you know, I was on the receiving end of the violence and the sporadic, crazy, um, oftentimes psychotic behavior. Um, and, you know, like, where's the checkbook? Well, where do you think it is? I put it in the oven. Why is the checkbook in the oven? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of, and it was, you know, it was, um, so marijuana and then it was, uh, Coke and heroin and meth and it literally anything and everything that you could think of. Um, and I am not a fan of drugs, I guess, because the one and only time that he ever talked me into doing marijuana it was laced with LSD. Um, I have a heart condition. Didn't know it at the time. Thought I was going to die. And he was so drunk and so high. He like couldn't figure out how to call 911. I wasn't in the shape to call 911. And so um, I almost died because he thought it was be a funny joke Yeah, well, to play on me. And that's why a lot yeah. of people are like, do you do you smoke? Do you whatever? And I'm like, um, no. I try. I tried it once, yeah. and you know, had a bad experience, and yeah. and so um, just going through that, and and thinking back about what your um, relationship was at the time with your mom, and how going through the steps of the program, you have to go back and apologize and repair um those relationships what was your mom's how did your mom receive that when you when you were making amends yeah Yeah, so first of all she didn't um so she didn't um for a long time she wouldn't even answer my phone calls you know Mm -hmm. a couple years a couple years you know been there did that yeah 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 (laughs) so like she she knew that she knew that like she was happy that i was in jail she would know if i was alive or not on facebook on on my active thing that's how she had to know if i was alive for me at the salvation army all my mom ever wanted me to do was be clean she just wanted her son back you know right always she never, never, never gave up on me. She just wanted me to be clean, you know. And 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 when I went to the Salvation Army, they have a, a parental counseling. Um, when when you're able to sit in a room with a counselor and you're able to talk to your mom, and right. and we were able to have an understanding. And like I let her know that you know early on as a kid, as being a great athlete, like like I was actually a really shy kid. So so you know being an athlete and all that, like I was very stressed out. I was really had a lot of stress, like. 
like 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 I couldn't ever show it or tell anyone, but I was very stressed out all the time as mm -hmm. being an athlete, and I was able to share her some things that had happened to me that she didn't really know about, you know, like, like I had been molested by a guy, like, like certain things that like I had went through that I had hid that I had kept secret, you know, and we were able to have like, such amazing conversation. And like, we both just like, I mean, you're talking about like crying, like, like, like just crying, like letting it all out crying. Right. Like, I was a, like I was a kid again, you know, like right. being able to apologize. And, 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 and that's hard to do, you know, and we got it all. I got it all out. And she realized that, like, you know, that she saw from my point of view, the things that I had went through. And I had seen now the point of view, like what I had put her through, because in my addiction, like you're just moving and grooving, like you're trying to get high. Like, like you don't really realize that your mom's at home thinking that you're like shooting dope in alleys and, and, and mm -hmm. like, being or like, 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 like the addiction in your mom's in your in your mom's mind is so much worse than what's actually really going on but right. it's crazy because she would be like are you shooting dope are you shooting dope in alleys are you like living behind dumpsters and i'm like no man i'm smoking dope with like respectable people you know what i mean like with the connect you know but then <laughs> but then but then five years five years later i'm pulling water out of the gutter and i'm shooting dope behind the, the, the uh, behind a dumpster so it was like her worst thoughts were actually coming true Right. Three or four years after, you know, so the stress of them constantly thinking that their kid might be dead, constantly praying that their right. kid is going it, to, it takes an absolute amazing, crazy toll. And we were at church one day at the Salvation Army and I was like a year sober and I looked at her and said, mom, you never have to worry about me again. I promise you. And, and that's a really big promise to make because we are right. humans and I am an addict, you know, but what I was told in early recovery is to put yourself out there accountable, do things that will make yourself accountable. So in order to have to actually relapse, it would be like this crazy event to have to like, like for me now, I do so much in the community. I put myself out there so much within mm -hmm. my community, with my clients, with my sponsees, with my family. Like my first, my first Thanksgiving back, everyone was asking me, all the purses were hid and everyone was asking me if I was okay every minute. Hey, are you okay? How you doing? Third Thanksgiving, people are asking me for advice, you know, right. on life. And that's right. the turnaround and the crazy change that has happened. But it was very, really hard. To, to, to have that first conversation with my mom and be able to like talk to Jason, you know, and be like, Hey man, like my stepdad, Hey, you are an amazing man. And you've all, when I used to make fun of you, cause you would wake up in the morning at four 30 and go to work with a lunch pal. And I used to call you Homer Simpson. Like you were the doing the, what you're supposed to do as a man, you know what I mean? Right. You were waking up, going to work every day. And now you have this amazing job. And now you're like 20 years in deep to the company you work for, you know what I'm saying? And now you're doing amazing and you're an amazing person. And you never left my mom's side and you are, 20 something years younger but you've always loved my mom and you've never done her wrong and you've taken care of all my brothers and i've been able to now say that and not feel no shame you know what I mean? no shame and no guilt you know i've been able to go back and do a bunch of amends you know but then i have what we call the living amends so somebody that has passed away or someone that's died or someone that i can't make amends to as long as i stay clean and sober then that's that's good enough at making that amends you know mm -hmm. there's some crimes i did in my addiction that i can't really go back and find that person because i really don't know who they are and i'm not going to go walk on their knock on their door and be like hey i did this you know but <laughs> as long as i continue to stay clean and sober i'm able to uh to be able to live my with myself i'm able to be forgiven by god and I'm able to move and groove with the Lord. So it was a, it was a difficult experience, but um, but it was a, one of the most amazing experiences to like have my mom and me be like best friends now, and my family like can't wait for me to to um to to come up here and see them, or can't wait for Thanksgiving, or calls me right. every day to see how I'm doing. Like 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 the, the price tags have been switched, 
and now I know what to put value in, you know, like the bell has been taken from me and I know what to put value in, you know, and like, and, and it's an amazing experience. So let me ask you, um, because, you know, when you were talking about sports and how stressed out you were, um, I can identify with that because growing up, I'm older. I'm a lot mm-hmm. older than you are. My parents were of the mindset that there is no good child and you're all going to be um, awful, evil people if they don't keep you busy literally at all times. Mm-hmm. And so I was in every single sport mm-hmm. there was basketball, volleyball, tennis, track. Oh, we're, we're going to put you on a flag football team. Oh, well, there's this over here. And we're in summer leagues and all this, like all the time. And it put so much pressure on me because you had to be the best and you had to be, especially for me being in everything. It's like, you have to be the best at every sport that you're doing. Uh, You can't settle for second best. You always have to come in first or, you know, win the tournaments or win the game or, you know, whatever the case may be. And I got to the point where I felt like I wasn't, having a childhood like at all because that's all I was doing and when you weren't in a game or a match then you're training for something and so I I almost felt like part of my life was kind of stolen in that aspect and it always stressed me out and like I wanted to just like breathe you know not necessarily party but just like go hang out with my friends and just be able to sit for a minute. And then the more they pushed and the more sports they pushed on me later on, I felt that, um, you know, I was kind of resentful to them for, for doing that and pushing me so much because I was a good kid and I got good grades and, you know, I was never like, I never wanted to go down that, dark path or anything like that. And I think for a a lot of, um, a lot of kids, which my stepson will tell you the same thing because his mom always pushed him to like do all kinds of sports that he didn't like Mm -hmm. and didn't want to be involved in. Um, and he got so resentful and stuff that it's kind of like you get to a rebellion stage where, okay, you, you always told me I'm going to be bad if I don't do sports all the time and I I don't you know succeed in everything that you want me to do and okay now I'm going to take a break and now I am going to rebel and now I am going to do something bad just to kind of prove you right that that I can be bad too yeah and I think a lot of kids go through that and parents don't understand how stressful um sports can be especially you know when when that's like the major focus and that becomes like your life. Yeah. There's a lot of people that, that you know, they, they live their dreams through their child. And, right. and, um, and that can be very, very abusive. Um, I know mm-hmm. that for me, like for me, like my, I had two cousins that died, um, 121, 122. They were uh, both really good athletes as a young age and they got into heroin and they both had, they both overdosed. But the thing is, is that see baseball is a game of failure. So, so when you're, when you're, when you're playing baseball, like in high school and stuff, and all of a sudden you, you know, that's all you, 
that's all you know. And there's so much pressure involved in the sports. You know, you tend to like go to the party scene because that feels good. That's, that's your release. That's your release, you know, and yeah. then they get, they get caught up in it to where then they don't even play sports anymore. And right. they get caught up in that whole scene. For me, um, like when I graduated high school and when I got drafted because of the area I'm from, it's like, it's like three cities and it's not, it's like, it's like kind of past the mountains. It's not like down in Orange County or San Bernardino. It's like, it's like up away. And I made baseball, my God. So the day that I was at, like, whenever I would have a bad outing, I thought I was letting the whole city down in right. my brain. Like, like in my mind, I'm like, I'm letting the whole city down, you know, and not, not even knowing what they're thinking, but that's what I'm thinking, you know? And, and, and when I was like, I, I didn't, for a long time, like after uh, uh, organized baseball was over when I was 27 or when I was 28 and I was now out of the Astros and now I was just trying to play, trying to keep the dream alive in like Canada, Mexico, playing in these other leagues. I wanted to stop playing then, but I couldn't because I felt that I didn't, I was so scared to go back home and tell the community that I wasn't playing baseball anymore, right. which were in reality, nobody probably was even thinking about me playing baseball anymore. I had been out of base. I've been out of high school so long, but you come back home and it's like, everyone acts like you're 16. Like you never grow from being 16 years old in your hometown. And the minute that I stopped playing baseball, I literally felt like I had died inside. It was crazy. Like I felt like I had died inside and now I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Cause like I said, I didn't take school serious. I had no mm -hmm. backup plan. I had no idea what I was going to do. So I was waking up every morning with my head spinning. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So, okay, I guess you get a job. That's what a grown man does. He gets a job. Next thing you know, I'm stretching out with 18 year old kids. I'm starting at the bottom, you know, and I'm not able to go to this, uh, go one o'clock into this one wall, this one pillar of this one wall and this one building over and over again. And so I continued to, uh, to do drugs cause I was able to escape all that anxiety and all that stuff that I, all those right. feelings that I had inside. When I went to the Salvation Army, I was able to go a whole year. I was able to go a whole year and not worry about uh, dishes. Um, you know, I wasn't worried. I wasn't worried about like things that you have to do every day. Like all these things are taken care of your laundry. All these things are taken care of. You just need to work on yourself. You make your bed in the morning. You have to follow rules, which I was, I was so eager to find rules in my life. Like now right. I have rules that keep me safe. So like I wake up and I have the same rules I learned there. I make my bed. I continue to, um, I like to read Proverbs. You know, I feel Proverbs is a good GPS about life. Right. And, and I continue to do that. So my, my rules keep me safe so I don't run amok, but it's my grace and it's my, my, my faith and my, and, and, and the Lord that sets me free. So like now I believe like if I had to go back to jail, like I would be okay with that because of who I am on the inside, you know, like, like, like no matter where I go, I get to take this person that loves God. That's super thankful. That's full of gratitude. And I get to be this person. Now Salvation Army, what I started learning is, is, is a foundation from the bottom. It's like they say, like a seed, right? If we're a seed and you throw it on the concrete and the sun will just burn it, right? But if right. you take a seed and you dig a hole and you put the seed in the ground and it gets dirt on them. So like us as, as humans, we have a little bit of dirt on us, right? So in the Salvation Army, I started to get the nutrients and the foundation to be able to grow. And when you graduate from the Salvation Army, there's a breakthrough period where you want to take everything you learn there and you want to take that into the next arena, so at the Salvation Army, you got some momentum going. What happened before the Salvation Army? You had no momentum. You lost it all. You lost all your momentum. You had no idea what to do. Now you've started picking up momentum because it's work therapy. There you work 40 hours a week, and it might be for free. You're paying for your program, but you're, you're actually learning something that's going to be very valuable to you 
as you take it into the next arena. So mm -hmm. what I tell the guys at the Sally, I say, once that breakthrough period happens, you got to be able to take what you learned at the Salvation Army and you got to be able to carry it over to outside the arena. And then that breakthrough period happens. And then that seed grows into an amazing tree or, or then it grows, you know, and that's what's happened to me is I've gone out of the Sally, but I do the exact same thing that I learned there. But I had to start at the bottom. When I graduated from there, I was literally riding a bike to work at 3.30 in the morning, starting work at 5, working in a warehouse for seven months every single day. So God wanted me to start my foundation from the very bottom. So he humbled my, I humbled myself. Right. Absolutely. And then, I could, then he continued to build me up. And then I went and worked 96 days as a resident manager. Then I met my wife. So me and my wife wanted to get out to get our own apartment. So I came over to private pay treatment and I started working as a front desk, front desk BHT where you're doing UAs, you're doing urine analysis all day, you're cleaning, you're scrubbing toilets, you're being a servant. And now I've been there for like a year and six months. And now I do transport. I have a company car. I make 22 an hour. You know what I'm saying? Like, like my whole life has changed, but I literally started at the very very, very bottom. And now I've worked my way up. And now God's given me this foundation to where I'm able to handle things. I haven't been hit with like some type of illness or like my mom hasn't died, but I believe I'm trying, I'm creating the foundation. So when this happens, I can handle it. And there has been some things that have happened in my life that would have knocked me off. But because of the foundation that I, I have now, I'm able to keep moving and grooving. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I think that that's really important. And like what you said, about being humbled it's such a um such a good place to be when you when you are humble and you you know you don't expect you know like the world to provide everything for you and you know you don't like one the one thing you mentioned earlier was like that you were worried or you were thinking that people were let down because of you and you know it, if you didn't win a game or whatever the case may be. And I think it's so important to translate that into everyday life for people. They're always looking for positive reinforcement from other people or worried about what other people think when the only way you should be looking for reinforcement is from okay. God. No, because 100%. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you, if you live your life it, it, by simple means and by humble means um, and worship and, and praise God in the proper way, you know, not asking for everything all the time, but being thankful and being yeah. grateful for everything that you have. Um, like me, I'm grateful for everything good or bad that's ever happened to me because it's helped me to learn and to grow and know, you know, what I need, what I don't need, what I don't want around me, things like that. And when, when you go on that path in life, it, it teaches you so much more about yourself and about how great you really are. And you get to see like, you know what, I'm awesome because God made me this way. Yeah. And I'm fantastic. And how can I let anyone down? Because yeah. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm on the path I'm supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important for a lot of people, especially now in the age of social media and whatnot, where they're constantly looking for, you know, someone else to approve of, 
you know, their picture or their status or their post yeah. or, you know, whatever. And, and like, oh, I can't wear that today because so-and-so won't like me or somebody yeah. will talk bad about me. Yeah. Focus on yourself and your relationship with God and, and things come to you. You know, when, when you, when you work on that and work on your inner self and work on your relationship, things get so much easier for you. And, you know, all the burdens and the troubles that you have just kind of like melt away because he removes all those. I like to call them speed bumps. Yeah. Amen. And I'm it's super speed thankful. Bump. Amen. It's just a speed bump. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I almost, I, I think back and like, I'm thankful for my addiction. You know, I'm thankful that right. I went through it. That's why like I have one of my videos and I, I and I, I say, I go, I go, I didn't make to the big leagues. Thank you. I became a dope fiend. Thank you. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Now I, I, I turn my life over to God. Thank you. Now I spread the good news. Thank you. <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying? Like, like, like I'm thankful, you know, because gratitude is what is gratitude is what, uh, you know, it, it creates everything for anyone. And like uh, Pastor mm -hmm. Rick Warren, who started Celebrate Recovery, he's amazing to me. He said that gratitude releases small amounts of dopamine from your brain that lets you continue to have joy where happiness right. comes from things that happen to you so they can come and go like the wind, guys. You cannot mm -hmm. find your validation in something that can come and go like the wind, like people, like humans, like your job, right. like money. Like these can all leave you like the Lord will always be there. Like in the beginning of COVID, God was there. And at the end now, right now, God is still there. And he is the only foundation that is solid. And you can put your 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 trust. You can put and anything constant. on top of that. It's constant. Exactly. And I, yep. I went I went through COVID at the Salvation Army. And when I look back now, I'm think, I think the Lord, I was in one of the best places in the world during the whole time. Because you hear about how people are relapsing. You hear about all these things, suicide right. and all this. But I was locked inside the Salvation Army, learning about God every day, doing my meetings every day, continuing to work every day. And now I believe that I didn't, I got clean right before fentanyl. So now I'm trying to show a lot of fentanyl awareness to be able to, I believe that I have been saved to be able to help people be saved because fentanyl, like I work in a treatment center right now and this stuff is so bad that right. it's killing people at an alarming rate. They're finding it in every drug. We had a client who thought he had a, had cocaine. He snorted it and died. We have clients that they, they constantly say, oh, I can, I, I'm ready. I can go back out there. I got this because the obsession tries to tell them that they can go back out there and use one more. They don't even make it home to their families. They already got an Uber to go downtown Imperial, right. San Diego, and now they're dead because – Fentanyl is not even letting you hit your rock bottom. Once you see a six foot four, 350 pound, 50 pound kid put this much fentanyl on tinfoil and die, mm -hmm. there's no, it's not worth it. Drugs are not the solution anymore. And, right. and the crazy thing in the homeless communities, they'll find out which fentanyl killed that person and they'll want that fentanyl. That's how crazy addiction is. It's the only disease in the world that we don't try to survive. We're trying to kill ourselves slowly but surely every day when you're addicted to drugs the disease is trying to kill yourself but every other cancer all these other diseases you're fighting for your life it's just an it's just an absolutely wild crazy thing and now fentanyl's out there and i try to get a lot of awareness on it because I've, we've lost 12 clients in the last year mm -hmm. on on fentanyl who have been driving with me in my car talking to me about faith, not really believing in God, not understanding the higher power thing, and then dead two days later. And you're right. like, in my mind, I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, was he saved? Was he not saved? You know, like it messes with you, you know, and and and, and that's the scary part, because like at least methamphetamine would, would have you reach this super low where you're like, 
disaster looking. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that but was the my ex-husband. Uh -huh. Oh, I bet you. I bet you he got bad, especially if he's cooking it. I mean, he's right around the worst of the worst. And people I know that used to cook meth, they would be like, "Dude, it's this crazy thing. Like you make this this batch of this thing, and it's worth so much money, but and it's this big party." But then when you get caught by the cops, now you're doing like eight years of prison for manufacturing. And it's no joke at that mm -hmm. point. You know, they were telling me how crazy it is. But, yeah, if he's right there and you're right there. You and you were right at the belly of the beast. So you saw the worst of the worst. You've seen the mm -hmm. worst of the worst. Yeah. And, you know, for a lot of uh, meth users, like he was so deep into using long before he ever started um, manufacturing. But, you know meth like destroys your teeth and oh, yeah. people like pick holes in their skin and you know patients would come in and they would think that like they had eggs in their nose like big eggs like yeah, yeah. chicken eggs yeah. in their <laughs> yeah. nose or you know they got worms crawling around under their skin or whatever and they're constantly picking sores and scabs and whatever so yeah <clears throat> He looked really beautiful, which um, I was very lucky because I actually divorced him when our daughter yeah. was two Yeah. Um, because I just could not. I did everything I could absolutely do. But his his family were very big enablers. Um, and it was like he'd call him up and be like, oh, I need twenty thousand dollars to whatever uh make up some stories very good at manipulation and so they would give it to him and mm -hmm. and not just you know field it and field it and field it but also too they had so much money that they would buy him out of jail time Probably. um yeah he had like 26 just duis from drunk driving but yeah. they always bought his way out of stuff and so, yeah, that was a, that was a very interesting. Yeah. Enabling uh, time. is. is <laughs> yeah. I, I could always, stealing uh, from, um, stealing drugs from a, um, really deadly motorcycle gang. Okay. And they kicked in our front door, <clears throat> had me face down on the floor with the shotgun to the back of my head. They were going to murder me because he took something of theirs and I'm like, oh, yeah. please God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So even, you know, going through just absolute horrendous garbage with him and because of him, I'm still thankful for that. Yeah. yeah. You know, because it not only taught me like what I don't want to do for myself, but what I don't want to be around and how to help other people and what kind of things to, to spot and whatnot, which being a nursing is very helpful, you know, when you can tell like what kind of drug somebody's on just by the way they act when they come in. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> yeah. No doubt. Like you, it sounds like you're not, you're not wasting your wounds. You yeah. Know what no. I'm saying? Like, like, like your wounds are wisdom and, yeah. and, and you're using the wounds that, you know, you're using your pain to help others to, um, I lost you. That was weird. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> but well, it looks like you're about yeah. things. Yeah. 
So, um, did you ever OD? I never did. Um, so I never, um, like I said, I, for me seeing heroin and all that people would, would smoke it. They would have tinfoil and they would smoke so much of it. And I never thought you could ever die from smoking something Well, you can from fentanyl. Right. So I, I never OD'd. If I ever did heroin, it was mixed with methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. And I did do heroin one time without methamphetamine. And right when I put it in my body, I thought I was going to die. Like I freaked out the whole time. So I was like, this isn't, this is retarded. So, but I have seen um, overdoses at my work. And it's no joke. And the thing is, is that what happens in chaos, this kid wakes up and all he wants to do is get high again. So, so when you OD and you wake up, there's no consequence. So right. if you, if you OD and you had your arm chopped off, you probably wouldn't ever do drugs again, <laughs> but you wake up and all you want to do is get high again. So the only ones that have consequence is your family. If you die, if you don't wake up, then, you know, you're dead. And, right. and, and everybody around you goes through chaos trying to save your life. You wake up, no consequence. For right. me, what I loved about Salvation Army, see, like, like, and I, I'm all for anybody getting clean and staying off fit and all. You know what I mean? So, like, if you have to do suboxone, if you got to do maintenance and all that, if you can stay alive, I, 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 I'm totally for it. For me, I, I got clean off. I just take nothing. I got the, I got the Lord, and now I reap the benefits for, for this. You know, but, but. I believe that when you come off drugs, that experience has to be pretty bad for you. So you never want to do it again. Right. What hospitals and, and rehabs are doing now, they're trying to meet the client halfway. They're trying to make the the, the, um, the detox comfortable. And, and what it's doing is it's not letting them reach that, that pain or that bottom right. that they should hit. And it's, and, it's, and it's enabling them to like continue to keep going back out again, you know? Uh -huh. and, and, and for me, I believe that, okay, if you get on the suboxone, now you got to come off that on a later date. Right. You're, you're going to have to come off that. And that's one of the things that people don't understand about that medication is that it is also a narcotic. Yes. So you're using a narcotic to to treat or help you come off of something else, which causes another issue. And I think um, wholeheartedly that a lot of the drug treatment programs, inpatient uh, especially, need to reevaluate a lot of the things that they do. And also, I think there needs to be a lot more treatment centers because um, a lot of times we would have a patient come in and they would be just desperate and begging for help. And we would call to get them in an inpatient treatment program somewhere. And they're like, I'm sorry, we don't have any beds. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you can call this other city. It's like an hour and 15 minutes away. You can call them. Okay. How's the patient going to get there? The patient is at their lowest. They lost their car. They, they're, you know, don't have anywhere to live. They're living on yeah. friends' couches and whatnot. How do you think that patient's going to get there? Yeah. You know, yeah, or they yeah. don't, they don't have any beds either. And so to me, there's not enough treatment centers, but there's also some issues. Yeah. I think treatment. that, I think, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, for, for me, okay. Like I've been through, I've been through state funded, which was a Salvation Army, so you're looking at a program right there where, um, and before I had to catch a felony to get there, like, like, right. like before I caught a felony, 
like I, I would have to call treatment centers and I would have to call and see if a bed was open, see if the bed right. was open. And then like four days of doing that, I was on the run again. Right. So to get into the Sally, I had to catch a felony. But the thing about a state funded program is that every bed's paid for by the state. So if, mm -hmm. if there's a lot more rules involved. So if right. you're going to like, if you're going to mess around or you're going to screw off or you're going to break the rules, they don't mind it throwing you out. Right. Because that bed's paid for. Now I right. work in private pay. I work in treatment center that's private pay. So now when every client's gone, they lose that money from that insurance company paying for that bed. So right. when the census gets down to like 51 clients, mm -hmm. then the owner has to be very smart with who he kicks out or not because he's running a company. Right. So if he kicks out all his clients, then how's the bills going to get paid or how's his, 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 um, his overhead going to get paid? Right. So then you'll start to see them start to like let clients get away with a lot of certain things, right. let a lot of things happen that shouldn't happen. Like, and there's no discipline. Right. And now the client starts to realize that he's got the power. And then what happens in private pay is that they relapse. And then they, then, and then when they relapse, they go right back to detox. Right. So they go back to detox and then now they're, you're getting 30 grand a month off that person. So right. you're going to detox, you're going to detox and this becomes this vicious cycle of kind of like enabling them. Right. To, to, to where that's not good. And you got to continue to like, you know, for the Salvation Army, when you graduate, they have a bridge house. To, um, they have a bridge house that you go to. So you graduate and then you can go to the bridge house, pay four hundred dollars a month and you can continue your progress in getting back into the world. And right. you can live there for two years, cheap rent, continue to go to chapel, continue to do the program now. So in private pay, they don't really have aftercare. They don't really they don't really try their hardest to get somebody to learn how to live outside of treatment, because honestly, it's in their best interest for that client to go back to detox. Mm -hmm. You see, and that's where the right. flawed that's where to me, that whole thing is a flawed is a flawed something. Something happened to where it all got it's it's, it's flawed, <laughs> you know, like well, and that's that's the thing. That's the same as like the pharmaceutical industry, you know, where they they rope you in with a prescription medication to where you're always going to be in that same circle in that same loop because mm -hmm. that medication gives you side effects then you have to take another medication to counteract the side effects and you're constantly in that circle and the addiction circle is is the same kind of thing where like you said they're banking on people and this sounds awful but it I but know. it's true it's true and i can say this because um my daughter works in addiction and recovery as yeah. well but she is is constantly telling me you know that this is the way the system is set up like you were talking about the census um it's the same kind of thing and they're banking on people to relapse so that they'll get recycled back through the system because that's how they make their money and it's the same thing with you know, the medical industry or the pharmaceutical industry where they have to keep you in that constant loop where you can't be cured, but will keep you well enough so that you have to keep coming back through. Yeah, no, 100 percent. And it's and it's something that's flawed within. But, yeah, they bank on, you know, right. they bank on because not everybody you, you can't just walk out on the streets and pick like you got to find a client that has insurance. Right. So that client, when they leave that facility they're now a golden egg. Like they right. know that client's out there. So they're going to continue to try to get that client to come back. Right. The thing about addiction is, is that people are going to relapse all the time. Like addiction is crazy. So now if you mm -hmm. go to a private pay place and the whole program, uh, 
detox residential PHP IOP is only a three month program. Right. That's not very long. You right. know what I'm saying? Where where the Salvation Army six months. Right. I went through the Salvation Army. I went through the Salvation Army in a year. I did a year right there. It was the best thing I ever done. I didn't have my phone. I have to fight with clients at my place for their phones all the time. They're so addicted to their phones. It's crazy. At the Salvation right. Army, I didn't even have a phone for a whole a right. year. I didn't I didn't date I didn't find I didn't date a girl for 16 months and then my wife didn't date a guy for 22 months and then we met each other. So we did it. We worked on our, ourselves and we became solo like we became ourselves finally. And right. now we go to work every day and we're non-toxic and we meet at night and we enjoy our company, but we don't like, we don't like depend on each other like constantly. And in the right. private pay treatments, they have couples rehab, you know, that's like, it's crazy. Like these two, these couples will meet in a detox somewhere else and then they'll come and then they'll put them in into this treatment center and they'll have them live together as a couple because they met a month ago at this detox yeah, center. Yeah, no. That's, that's just that's messed up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that's incredible, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it just doesn't work. But but for a business standpoint, that person right there, that person is having two heads in one bed. So they're bringing in two clients at one time. So as a businessman, it looks like a good idea. Right. But us on the us on the front lines that are actually dealing with it all, it's insane to like actually have to go into these houses and see these things that are happening, you know. But but it is what it is. Like I said, like I'm thankful uh, for where I work. They've given me this amazing life, and like I just look at it like this: like Jesus would have put himself around the most sick. So I just continue to believe like that. Like I'm around the most sick, and I got to continue to understand that. Like my mom reminds me about how bad I was when I was in right. addiction, and how bad I was when I would try to get clean. So I need to realize that, you know, that I need to show some grace and some mercy for these people that are in early addiction and that they are manipulative, that they are this way. And, and, and some of them have really became accustomed to going in and out of these treatment centers. You know what I mean? Right. So so you got to be, you know, it's, it's it, like I, I'm blessed that I've been there a year and a half and I've been able to handle all the things, you know, that I have the foundation to, to be able to handle these things. But like I said, for me, my whole purpose is to spread the good news. My whole purpose is my YouTube channel is to hopefully one day me and my wife become pastors for the Salvation Army and we end up going to officer school. These are like the things that I want to do with my life. And so right. my job is paying the bills. You know, that's what my job is doing. But my main purpose is to move and groove with the Lord, baby. Amen <laughs> to that. Amen yeah. to that. So, Mr. Monty, I'm so excited that you uh, joined me today for this conversation. Tell them uh, where they can find you at. So I have a YouTube channel. It's a Monty Mansfield Hope Dealer. I just put out two shorts of motivation and I do like one long, like a little 10 minute devotion, you know, just talk about recovery and, and relating it to with the Lord. Um, you know, my uh, Instagram's just Monty slash or Mansfield slash Monty. My Facebook's Monty Mansfield. And I just like, just love to spread the good news, guys. I got some good content over there. I just started it like a couple months ago. So, you know, it's just, just wherever God takes it, you know, God blesses the word. And like I said, thank you so much, Janet, for having me on. It's been an absolutely amazing experience. And I'm just super thankful to be able to have these opportunities. You know, like I said, three years ago, I was on the jail cell floor, strung out on meth and heroin now, and I'm moving, grooving for the Lord right now. Like I tell people, I said, I used to noodle groove for the devil, and now I'm moving, groove for the Lord, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. I love that. So, um, again, thank you for joining me today. If you guys are new to Deplorable Nation podcast, you can find the audio version on every podcast platform. You can also find it on actual activist with an S on the end.com. You can find it on Alt Media United, and you can check out 
the video version only on Roku TV live on the Patriot Podcast Network. So go search for Patriot Podcast Network channel on Roku TV. Make sure you hit that little star button up in the corner. Give it a five-star review. There's a lot of content creators on there. So that's where you can find it at. And as always, I'm Deplorable Janet. Stay Stay awesome, stay wonderful, stay positive in yourself, and be sure to love one another. So for me and for Monty, see you next time. Have a good one. Thank you, guys. Yeah, Thank you so much.